Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. As you know, this is a podcast that's produced for Strategy International. It's a global think tank um, that assembles a huge variety of experts on a variety of issues such as um, international policy, defense, security, uh, international relations, economy, environment, and much, much, much more. Uh, Of course, for more information, you can head on to www.strategyinternational.org where you're going to find a bunch of publications, very interesting articles that you can read. Uh, speaking of experts, we have uh, another great one with us today, Frederick Lemieux. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, and of course, uh, a, a local boy from uh, from Quebec, from my hometown. So it's always good to, uh, to meet individuals doing great things abroad uh, that started from here, from Quebec, from Canada. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I miss I miss I miss Canada. We'll probably be there for the the holiday season, so I'm looking forward to it. There you go. Uh for the benefit of our listeners and viewers, uh you are obviously not in Canada. You're in the US. You are a professor at uh, and the faculty director at Georgetown University uh with very significant expertise in intelligence, cybersecurity, homeland security and international um cooperation. Of course, needless to say, you are a valued senior consultant uh, over at Strategy International on matters related to intelligence, cybersecurity, and uh, technology. Great to have you on. Um, super excited to talk to you. Um, before we get started, though, just to go back on you know what I what I said, the fact that you're from Quebec, and for me, it's always fascinating to be meeting. Uh, people either from Montreal or anywhere in Quebec that are working abroad. And uh, even, you know, whether I travel and and I see them anywhere in the world, I'm always curious to know, you know, what got them uh, there, right? Whether they're traveling or whether they're living or working abroad, like in your case, uh, give me a little bit of that, of that background, uh, you know, that whole interest um, to go down this path uh, to get interested in the, in the topics that you are excelling at. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I always consider myself as a global citizen, right? So very early on when I was, you know, like in doing my undergrad and grad, I was like signing up for you know, all those international projects. So I worked a couple of years uh, in Africa. So in West Africa and Central Africa, where where, you know, like I was confronted to different kind of like dimension of international affairs and, you know, how, how you know, inter, international interference also like guide and impact politics in these regions uh, of the world. I also lived uh, for a little while in Cuba as well. So, you know, like, again, another area like heavily impacted by international politics and pressure and embargo and all those kinds of things. And um, and and I was really interested by, you know, the topic of, you know, criminology, criminal mind and those kinds of things at the same time. So I pursued that that aspect. But it it turns out that while I was doing my PhD, I developed this interest for, you know, like uh, developing analytical insights. And um, that's how I got closer to uh, much more the intelligence aspect of, and that's how, you know, like I got involved, you know, in research related to intelligence, sharing intelligence around the world among police agencies, among, um, um, you know, security um, 
uh, agencies. And, um, and, you know, to excel in that area, I would say that uh, what became uh, clearer over time was uh, the United States, especially after 9-11, was presenting a lot of opportunity to study intelligence, homeland security, even cybersecurity was starting, was bubbling up at that time. So I decided to take an offer from from back then, uh, George uh, Washington University. So I did 10 years there. So I moved into US around 2006, 2007. And I took a uh, a job there where I developed a master's in Homeland Security, a master's in cybersecurity. And, um, and in 2016, um, I went to work for Georgetown uh, University, like nearby university. Um, and they were having an interest in, in really building up on my, um, on my expertise related to intelligence, still, still keep the, um, uh, the cybersecurity aspect of it, but develop more the intelligence. And I was thrilled by that because not that I put that aside at GW, but I mean, Georgetown really wanted me to develop that aspect. So I went, you know, like head first and, and, and it, it, it went very well. I developed a master's there in applied intelligence, uh, a cybersecurity master's program. But I'm also interested, and in, in it might come out uh, during our conversation today, but I'm also inter- interested in disruptive technology and how disruptive technology, intelligence, and security overlap with mm-hmm. each other. And how that, you know, like sometime uh, flares up uh, on the battlefield as well. Yeah, we're going to talk about that because and of course, you know, everyone's focus right now is uh, in um, in Eastern Europe where there's a major conflict happening. But before we get there, and I want to talk about that because you had an interesting piece on how um, the use of nuclear weapons um, or the threat of using nuclear weapons has kind of shifted. But before we get there, I just want to stick a little bit more to this decision that you made in the U.S. And you mentioned the fact that after September 11, things really changed. And I'm just curious to know how. You know, living in the U.S. post 9-11, in that whole reality where suddenly we're all kind of susceptible to the threat that maybe someday we're all in danger um, of a possible, you know, terrorist attack or and that reality. And for people like us in Canada, and I'm assuming also back then in the U.S., wasn't really something that was tangible. And suddenly from one day to the next, it became almost everyone's reality. Yeah, absolutely. And it really changed the way that we were like kind of balancing security and freedom, right? And you know, like so that that became like totally, I would say, new and I would say probably um oppressing um discussions that brought, I would say, the worst on both sides <laughs> to a certain level. Um, but the interesting point that also like with 20 plus years of, uh, I would say, distance from 9-11. And that's a new piece that's a, a giving you a little nugget from a little my, hint, my new yes. piece <laughs> coming up. It, it was, if you want, the first major challenge to the West and the United States entering in the 21st century. If you think about that, like in 1990, 1991, the, the, the entire Soviet Union collapse and, you know, gets dismantled, you know, countries are running away, getting their independence and all those kinds of things. And the U.S. kind of became, um, you know, for a, a about a decade long, this kind of like leading force in the world, trying to repositioning itself as a superpower. 
And then in 20, in 2001, you get this like, you know, full hit on the United States, something that did not happen. I'm not comparing that to Pearl Harbor, but in terms of attack on the U.S. territory, nothing like that really happened since Pearl Harbor. And, and that was, a, a you know, like a, I would say the, the first challenge to the West and the first challenge to the United States. And I do believe we're talking, you, you mentioned like um, nuclear weapons, what's going on in, in uh, Eastern Europe and also what's going on in, in uh, West Pacific. It's this, it's this continuity of a challenge to the West, a continuity to saying like, there's other models. There's people that are, or countries that are saying like, there's other ways we want to explore. We want to impose, we want to realize. And, and those challenges are right now bubbling up seriously. And we're seeing them happening in front of our eyes right now. Yeah, so, it, so, it, so, mm-hmm. so I, I would say that that adjustment to terrorism and to a, a focus on much more a laser focus on war on terror also probably disorganize a little bit the capacity of the West to respond to more conventional, I would say, um, challenge coming from a nation state like Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. And I think that this is right now we're racing against the clock, the West, the United States racing to against the clock to reposition itself, you know, in front of those new challenges. And it's fascinating because, you know, as technology advances at an exponential speed, yeah, you have these threats also kind of changing as well. So for countries and I'm not sure, I mean, you're the expert here um, for countries like the U S that, or maybe even Canada that weren't so familiar with, for example, cyber terrorism or cyber mm-hmm. attacks that they have to, like you said, catch up. Yeah. They're already behind the ball while everything is still advancing and evolving. And you have other countries that have taken the lead or, or organizations that have taken the lead uh, on, um, on these patterns of, cyber attacks or cyber terrorism that are way ahead of the curve yeah or, or they are they are just less exposed just imagine you know the level of internet penetration in the us and compare that to china or compare that to uh to russia there's far less digital penetration in those countries which make them less exposed right. than the us that is like everything is online like even mm. or like like critical infrastructure is is totally mm. online so so it's not just like understanding the threat but it's realizing how much you are vulnerable to mm. it mm-hmm. and um, you know and and the multiplication of you know like angle of attacks on those different systems are are just like multiplying and are just like uh, expanding every week every month because like we're putting more gadgets and you know out there to support or organization government agencies and so on and so forth to be more efficient but in the same time we're just opening the door to you know more vulnerabilities yeah it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be interesting because i mean that's the world that eventually we're we're already living in it and right. it's, it's difficult to imagine how much more it could evolve in 10 15 20 years from now and because we obviously know that it will evolve yeah then we're automatically thinking of what kind of more advanced threats are we opening ourselves up to? It's uh, it's quite fascinating. Uh, I want to get to that article that you wrote, to the publication that you wrote. And again, for everyone wondering or curious to read, you can head on over to uh, strategyinternational.org. Um, and you have all the articles, all publications there of all the people that are collaborating with uh, Strategy International, just a lot of value that you can find over there. Um, and, and you wrote this publication specifically about 
this this trend, I want to say, or this shift that we're seeing in the threat to use nuclear weapons. And I found that very interesting because you write rightfully so that you know nuclear weapons, even though there's a there's a handful of countries that have them, have always stood kind of uh, back from using them. It was always kind of like a defensive mechanism as a deterrent. Yeah. And for the first time, since everyone's attention now has been focused in Eastern Europe, we're seeing a country that I think has the most nuclear warheads yeah. uh, preemptively uh, threatening uh, the West by potentially using them without necessarily being attacked, which traditionally was the essence of uh, having nuclear weapons. Correct. And and what is interesting is we, sh we we see that shift of, you know, like using weapons as a response instead as, you know, like um, uh, as a, um, a, a, a mean to an end of an offensive end. And that was interesting. And that really picked my attention uh, on February 27th when Russia decided to put its um, nuclear deterrent strategic forces on high alert to shield its offensive into Ukraine, sending a message that like, stay out of it, the West, stay out of it. And I'm, I'm doing that and don't even dare trying to counter me. And that was, yes, it is in fact deterrent, but it is a deterrence that is there to protect a offensive operation, which is totally new in terms of, of, I would say, approach. Like we never saw that during the Cold War, like the US or, or the Soviet Union did not say like, okay, so I'm going to Afghanistan and now, you know, the US, if you're supporting the Mujahideen, I will put my nuclear forces in, in that. And it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happened when the US and, and Russia were close to confront themselves in in you know in the uh, unfolding missile crisis in Cuba, mm -hmm. uh, they were on eye alert and so on. But that's where like the two the two countries were getting head to head in 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 a uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. So so that's that that was the only time we had that. But they were like preparing for you know an unfolding defense you know possible defense if they they are going to war. In this particular case, um, you know, like it was not that. And we, we're trying right now, what we're seeing is we're seeing, uh, you know, Japan, it was only a, a one situation. And I don't want to make, you know, a, a, a make sound like it's, it's imminent or anything like that. But very recently, um, uh, officials, um, you know, from the military in, um, in China, um, a published posted a video that was made by uh, the army of the military of China, and they were threatening Japan of being nuke mm -hmm. if they were interfering in a, a possible if they were defending uh, Taiwan if mm -hmm. Taiwan was getting. So you see that kind of rhetoric, you know, picking up where we're saying like, don't get involved because we'll nuke you. So that and that is interesting because. It comes out of a, 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 a I would say, a, a backdrop narrative. And the backdrop narrative where it becomes very difficult to counter, it's the fact that if you look at what um, Vladimir Putin said before invading uh, Ukraine, he is talking about those those lands pertaining to Russia historically, right? Mm. So, so there is a kind of a narrative related to this is ours, right? So it's a reclaiming ours. If you think about um, uh, China, it's the same thing about 
Taiwan, right? And 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 if you even want to push that discussion, you can have North Korea saying like, and it's part of his objectives, it's to reunify uh, the two Koreas. And so we are facing right now reclaim narrative where they're saying those piece of lands are ours. And if you interfere into that, you're interfering in our territory. Mm -hmm. And so the defense becomes, you know, like still there, but we are making a point that to, 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 to get that back, we have to go to war, we have to invade, we have to do an offensive. And that's where I'm saying we're seeing a shift in the in the narrative in the rhetoric around nuclear weapon and just to debug one more thing is in 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 the mind of most people when they say oh well yeah nuclear would be crazy because like an entire bomb can wipe out like large you know surface and it's it's a misconstrued misconception of the arsenal of nuclear weapons. Uh, you were saying before that the Rush the Russians have the largest weapon, you know, uh, nuclear arsenal. They do, but more importantly, they have been invested heavily in those tactical nuclear warhead. They have two thousand of them while the U.S. only have about two hundred, and those two hundred warheads are mostly parked in military base in Europe. But that's it. And and so what we're seeing here is is and what we are hearing from the Russian is those tactical nuclear weapons are non-strategic in their definition when they are using the definition of what is part of a treaty, the START treaty, what is nah, 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 those are ICBMs. Those are the huge big bomb that people think about when they think about the nuclear warfare. Mm -hmm. But there's those smallest thing that could be like some of them could be, you know, like um, uh, launched from a heavy mortar or a um, a missile launcher, like, a you know, like a, mm -hmm. a ground to ground missile launcher. So that's 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 something that is the, the Russian are more aware of that leverage on on the West and certainly are using right now in their rhetoric to have the, the, the West backing out of their support from from Ukraine. But we're seeing the opposite effect. Um, I mean, you know, we, 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 hindsight, you know, we say hindsight is 2020. And, you know, back in late February, when Putin came out with uh, with this statement, everyone was was afraid that is he going to use yeah. nuclear weapons? It's been almost, you know, whatever, eight months later. And we're seeing the complete opposite effect where. There's been this enormous solidarity towards Ukraine. You have an enormous fleet of weapons uh, flying into you into Ukraine from you know, from all sorts of partners uh, internationally, and Russia still hasn't done anything. Uh, do you think it's a it, it, it has affected or it will in the future affect its credibility, or is it a topic that you just can't play around with because you just never know? I, I think I think that they will need a threshold, right? They need a threshold to justify um, the use of nuclear weapons. I think that threshold could be at any time, you know, um, um, uh, reached. The reason why it's because the threshold for um, tactical nuclear weapons use is far more lower than the ICBM and the big ones that you shoot, you know, in intercontinental. Um, um, and for example, like if Crimea got to be taken by Ukraine, I mean, um, you know, you can even see in the nuclear doctrine of Russia that could really impact like nuclear 
um, um, you know, uh, stockpiling. Uh, you have also uh, all sorts of, you know, military um, um, station that are in the complex city of the systems of nuclear missile defense. All those things would be uh, jeopardized if if Ukraine were to enter and and take over like Sevastopol and so. So 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 the, right there, they would have, for example, a claim to their own doctrine to go ahead and use the nuke to stop them. So so there's that. Uh, the other thing is, and in and you know, I, I I take the man to his word in the sense that if he really intend, okay, if he really intend to wage a war against the West, and Ukraine is the first piece in in a domino that he wants to you know like uh, start, um, he cannot win by conventional warfare against thirty countries in NATO. It, you know, it shows right now that, you know, conventionally, it cannot win. Uh, you know, NATO doesn't even have to be militarily active in Ukraine. It can just like play a role of advisor, send weapons and something like that. And Russia cannot. So it might. It, and that's why I'm saying we should pay attention to that shift in the narrative of uh, of of the um, uh, offensive deterrent strategy. Because that might be the only way that he might be being able to achieve its its goals if he, he maintain that cap and he maintain that that direction, that's that's probably the only way where you will have that nuclear blackmail being imposed. It's mine or I nuke. It's mine or I nuke. And the question is, it's not just a blackmail itself. Is what kind of response we have to that? Right. That's a very interesting question. What would the response be should russia take that step should putin take that extreme step and say you know what that's it and tomorrow he launches nuclear warheads into into ukraine yeah. how prepared is the west for such um a, a res, uh, to, to respond to to, to to such an action are they ready yes i i mean i mean I think the question is that they are not ready. Um, I think that you know you can you can say it will be, you know we can we can hit you we can we you know like I we hear a lot of things that you know the U.S. could order like assassinations and you know like uh, I don't think that the U.S. or or the West uh, could respond tit for tat and launch you know where launch launch a nuke on 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 Russian territory I mean that's that's war automatically that's mm -hmm. that's you know like then it, it goes off so you cannot go there so and also my 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 point is how much the so we talk about the tactical and I'm, I want to play with word here because because tactical might have an impact or a limited impact on the, the battlefield. A lot of experts says, well, even if you use that, I mean, it doesn't destroy the entire military of Ukraine and it will be partial. But the tactical could have a strategic impact in the sense that if he used that, he might or he, or he thinks that he might crack nato in terms of in terms of uh cohesiveness and you will have countries that will run scared saying like that is going too far we have to go to the negotiation we have to give some of the thing that russian wants and we have to back off so he might just plan for that i mean so far i'm not saying that you know the sanctions are doing nothing but um, but they have limited impact. We saw it. I mean, I mean, North Korea is under sanctions for more than thirty years, forty years, and 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 they are still there. They are still yeah. having their nuclear weapons. We did not prevent that. But they also, but they also get aided by 
major countries like China and Russia. Yes, exactly. Well, but but the thing is 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 we are also wrong to think that the sanctions are applied by the rest of the world. There's right. more countries in the world that do not apply sanction yeah. on yeah. Russia than there's. So there's also this illusion of, you know, like mm -hmm. the world is against that. Nah, maybe the Western world is against Russia, but you cannot say that the entire world. So right. it's not without resource that he, he might decide to do that. Right. Um, and and so so I'm, I'm saying like there is a lot of of, of speculation here. But the speculation are on the table for only one reason. They are not stopping about talking about nukes and the use of nukes. Uh, they recently have a, uh, a, a, a approved um, 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 protest in Moscow calling for the use of nukes on, on, on UK and US. So, and those are Kremlin you know, approved things. So, so we, we have to be careful and we have to be listening and we have to be ready to respond to that. And, and so far, I don't think the West would be equipped uh, militarily to necessarily respond or would be ready to respond to a nuclear attack. Like, like, do you really want to um, get involved in World War II, World War III for um, Luhansk or Donetsk or Kherson? Uh, uh, I mean, that's a tough call. It's a really tough call. So, so, and I'm not sure that Western countries right now after that decision, like crystal clear and ready to go. I think the Western countries, from my analysis, they're very, uh, they're holding themselves back from actually making any sort of decision on any possible uh, negotiation. Uh, the main lines are, well, Ukraine is going to decide on its own on whether or not they want yeah. to negotiate because obviously they have, they had their land seized literally from, yeah. uh, from Russia. Um, do you see any potential light at the end of the tunnel over here, or are we stuck in this situation for, for years still to come? Well, we, you know, we saw the Russian getting out of Afghanistan, right? In the eighties, they could decide to go out from there, but I doubt the reason why I doubt it's because the politics here is different. It's identity politics, right? So it's deeply ingrained into history. It's deeply ingrained also in um, in a country's behavior. Um, you know, like we have to understand, and sometimes, like you know, like the conversation goes only back to the the twentieth century with the creation of NATO for you know defending the West and also. But we have to understand that um, historically. Um, the Russian and Russian Russia was an empire, right, under the Tsars and so on. So, and to a point where historians are, are talking about like Russia was expanding to a certain degree up to 50 miles each year, grabbing, getting more land, and and to a point where the I would say the apex of the Russian Empire was about one sixth of the entire emerged land that exists on earth. So that's a lot of territory. And, um, and, 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 and historically, then you have to admit that what happened with the fall of the Soviet Union and the dismantlement of that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that the Soviet Union, the, the, the Eastern Bloc, um, is an anomaly in history. And um, and I'm not sure that uh, there's only Putin that wants to correct that anomaly. And I think that that if there's something here, 
more than the Ukraine, you know, like um, Russia, you know, like a conflict. There's something that is more like historic and cultural that pertains to the, you know, like um, uh, the power that exists in, in Russia that is not done with that kind of uh, historical defeat in 1990. Mm-hmm. And it's not only shared by Putin, it's shared with by a lot of you know, like uh, politicians and 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 power brokers in in Russia, that I, I we're not done with that and and that you know like willingness to recover some of it or to expand the role of Russia in world's affairs. That's interesting. Speaking of uh, of of, the, of that similar topic, I want to get on to another uh, publication that you put up specifically with. China and Taiwan. You did mm-hmm. mention that before, and that almost immediately as the Russia-Ukraine conflict started, all analysts turned their eyes also to Taiwan for a possible kind of replication, if you want. Um, what is happening over there, and why is Taiwan so important to China? Well, you know, Taiwan is um, was, if you want, the place where those who were combating the Communist Party combating did retreat, and it's a, it it always was co- considered as a province of of China, but it became autonomous. And because the those who were in power before the Communism Party took over in China, they decided that they were a government in exile, if you want, they will continue to govern China from Taiwan, and they will ignore um, the legitimacy, if you want, of the Communist Party. And, and, and of course, it didn't last very long, I mean, a couple of decades, but you know, like it, 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 it wind out. But the thing that Taiwan, you know, like really kept going, it was its kind of like independent system from the communist China. And, 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 and this is something that they want to maintain. And this is something that the US wanted to help to maintain and having a foothold for democracy in that area, maintaining that, that democratic um, um, uh, ideology. And the way to do that is they went all in, in terms of specific resources related to technology, especially investment in semiconductors, microchips that goes in all electronic, you know, to these days. And they 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 put that as a, a main, I would say, foothold and hold on the economy and so on and so forth to say like, we are committed to Taiwan because we are depending on Taiwan to help us with that. And um, and so so that's that's the that's if you know like simplified that's the current situation and that's why the U.S. is holding also so so hard on on Taiwan. It, it represents two things. It represents you know the defense of democracy and the projection of power of the U.S. in that area of the world. And the second thing is economically and militarily, um, Taiwan is almost part of the national security. Um, 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 I would say um, um, priorities of the United States because uh, a lot of its defense systems depend on those microchips that are, right. are being you know produced in Taiwan. So that's you know that's the game going on here. The other game that we're not talking a lot is is the U.S. not trusting China and China not trusting U.S. in retroceding like any kind of you know country based on an agreement. 
it went wrong with Hong Kong, right? So when Hong Kong went retroceded to, to China, um, China made a promise to leave Hong Kong um, being able to govern itself for at least 50 years. It was an agreement they had, and, and China kind of breached that agreement and crackdown after crackdown that come up was able to really like change the mode of the mode of governance over there and take over the governance of, of Hong Kong, you know, like uh, betraying its 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 agreement with the West. So that's why it makes Taiwan difficult to negotiate in that particular thing, because there's a precedent that it might not happen mm -hmm. and the China Chinese will not honor their agreement. So that's why there's um, the position of the West is, you know, hardening on on that on that front. And again, it's it's a territorial claim, right? So China, like Russia, is saying like that piece of land is mine. Historically, it was mine, and I want to keep to have it back. So that's what that's why it makes those two, I would say, those two um, uh, comparable in a certain ways. Um, another thing that makes it comparable is is the way that the U.S. will strategize to defend both, right? So it's. I know that uh, President Biden said, like, if 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 China will attack um, Taiwan, uh, they will respond. They will engage militarily. They will they will send soldiers to defend. I I I take that. I would not say with a grain of salt. I think he is serious about that, but I think he wants to disengage of that. So what we're seeing right now is, you're, you know, the bill regarding the microchips in the U.S. to repatriate, you know, the production or change at least the the project production sites of microchips to put it elsewhere, like in India or bring it back in the U.S. is it is a, a immediate signal that um, uh, the U.S. is no longer comfortable with a national security, you know, in, you know, priority being so close to a a China that could invade any time. So there's that. The other thing that is also signaling that the U.S. might not be um, uh, involved directly uh, in a conflict with China is the fact that they are using what we call the porcupine strategy. So they are doing exactly what they're doing with the Ukrainians. It's arm them to the teeth, give them like small, mobile, but super effective weaponry and weapon systems to be able to repeal any kind of like, in you know, attempt to, to invade Taiwan and so on. Same thing that they are doing in Ukraine. So they're adapting the same strategy. So that's interesting. On the Chinese side, what we're seeing is, well, there's lessons learned from, from Ukraine, and they might not be the one you're thinking. Of course, the Russians are taking a, a hit on the ground, on the territory of Ukraine. But the the Russians have, have been very, um, very effective in doing the blockade of the Black Sea. And, um, and you know, like on... February the 23rd, the Russian was not controlling grain export from mm -hmm. Ukraine. And, you know, after that, they do. So they have been able to gain a lot out of that and impose themselves into that kind of trade and control of world resources. And, and the interesting point here is it's probably exactly where the blueprint for the Chinese lies, meaning that the Chinese could em emulate what the Russian did in the Black Sea and try to replicate something 
similar in the Taiwan in the Strait of Taiwan, and they would they could choke Taiwan without attacking it. They could choke the West through the you know trading routes that goes to which is very important in terms of value but volume as well. And so it could have a lot of, and then what, then you will again put the, the West in a very uncomfortable situation where you say, there's no invasion. There is uh, them deploying their fleet, you know, cutting, you know, some routes and so on and choking Taiwan, but there's no invasion. So the U.S. would say like, are we going to ignite a third world war over the Strait of Taiwan? And again, the question is not clear that it's a yes. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the Chinese are understanding that as well. And they might be able to save face where the Russians are not, right. meaning avoiding the, the the total invasion of the ta- Taiwan island. Assuming that I, I want to go back to that bill that is being proposed to move away those interests for the microchips uh, yeah. to other countries or back into the U.S. Yeah. Assuming that happens and then suddenly the U.S. doesn't have any material interests any, any longer in Taiwan, would that not open the door for China to pretty much come in and step in and say, well, look, the, the U.S. interests are, are gone, which means, you know, that, that that's pretty much a green light for us. I think it will give the, the, the green light. I, I think right now, Okay, again, it's speculation, but I think right now, China taking back Taiwan has been assessed as inevitable. Mm-hmm. And now the U.S. try to reduce the pain out of that mm-hmm. inevitability. And But it doesn't mean that the U.S. will fail its promise of supporting Taiwan uh, to defend itself. But it's kind of like the U.S. probably right now try to extract itself from a very painful trap where it doesn't want to go like in a world war, for example. Meanwhile, mind you, um, you know, like it's not a conflict only between the US. It will be a regional conflict, like Japan will be involved. Uh, To a certain extent, Australia will be involved and North Korea can also have its say in getting involved too. They showed us that they have like long range missiles now, so they can hit that area. So, so that, that is just like a really like a, a powder keg, you know, like ready to explode. So, so clearly the US will probably wants to extract themselves of that very explosive situation. They probably came to the conclusion that, you know, like it, you know, Taiwan is slipping away at least uh, toward um, toward China and they want to make it painful and they want to make it very difficult for China to move along with that plan and probably maintain its promise that they will always support Taiwanese. So I think I think they could they, they could probably beef up, but they would certainly withdraw any kind of like national security issues that would that will um, make it imperative for the U.S. to get involved militarily. How how impactful do you think um, it will be? The, the, the there's a South Pacific partnership uh, that that is being uh, talked about. Uh, I think it started earlier this year um, w- with uh, different partnerships. Uh, you mentioned Australia, Japan, of course. Uh, India is heavily involved in there as well. Uh, South Korea. How impactful could that be? At, restricting china uh in any sort of actions uh like the ones you refer to i think china is growing its influence in that area i i think that the us you know unfortunately we are in a situation where where china has to gain 
in 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 the U.S. and the West has to minimize their loss in in that game where China trying to gain influence, and um, and that's where Taiwan becomes a key because if they abandon totally Taiwan, like if it doesn't help Taiwan to defend itself and so on and so forth, all those countries that have a sympathy or have a treaty or have any kind of agreement, trade agreement with the U.S. Will, will turn their back on the U.S. and would say like, oh gosh, you would not be there for us. So we're, we're, we're better start to negotiate with China right yeah. away. So there's this kind of situation as well. So it might not be, it might not be like um, uh, uh, those treaty might prevent Taiwan to be invaded. I don't think it's that. I think it's it's in fact, Taiwan must be defended to preserve uh, the U.S. projection of power and, and trust in that area of the world. Very interesting. We can we can we can talk for hours, and I know that you're a very busy man. I don't I don't want to take uh, much more of your time. Uh, I want to thank you so much uh, for for coming on the podcast again. For anyone interested, you can visit strategyinternational.org, read these inter- interesting uh, publications uh, from Frederick Lemieux and from other uh, consultants over at Strategy International. Uh, final note, uh, Frederick, is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to share? Uh, give us some uh, some knowledge or some value yeah so um you know what i was mentioning at the beginning like where i was talking about the challenge to the us to the 21st century so i'm right now i'm working on a paper for um strategy international where i'm looking at this redefinition and reconfiguration of the uh world order so the paper will be something like the new world disorder uh or the um growing irrelevance of the West in the world's affair, because we see like a realignment. We saw what's going on with Middle East and and China and Russia. We're seeing what's going on with India and Russia. Um, so there's a lot of realignment and it's not everybody. And we talked about the sanctions that it's most countries do not apply those sanctions around the world uh, against the Russians. So, so there is really a realignment in which we have to look you know, like further down the road of what would be the role of the West and and is the West ready and capable of letting go of some of the, I would say, uh, leading role that it's having in certain, in certain part of the world. So that will be the paper looking at that and why it could happen. Very interesting. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I hope our viewers and listeners are as well. Thank you again. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We'll see you all in the next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.